It's Wednesday, November the 2nd, 2022, and you're listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the world. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm the Hoover Institution's Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism. We're not the only Hoover Fellow doing podcasts these days. Go to Hoover's website, which is hoover.org. Click on the tab at the top of the homepage. It says commentary. Then move over to where it says multimedia, and up will come all the podcasts that Hoover does. You can also sign up for Hoover's monthly pod blast, which delivers the best for our podcasts, your inbox each and every month. My guests today are David Brady and Doug Rivers. Dave Brady is the Davies Family Senior Fellow Emeritus at the Hoover Institution and the Bowen H. and Janice Arthur McCoy Professor of Political Science at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Doug Rivers, likewise, a Hoover Institution Senior Fellow and a Stanford Political Scientist. He's also the Chief Scientist at YouGov PLC, the highly respected global polling firm. With the election less than a week away, it seemed like a good time to discuss what's going on in American politics. David, Doug, great to see you. Nice to see you. Morning. So, Doug, it's always a challenge to track you down at this time of the year because you're about to leave California and head east. Uh, Tell us how you will be spending election night. I'm on the decision desk at CBS News, and so we um, are responsible for um, calling um, or, as we say these days, estimating state-level election results, Um, so deciding which races uh, are won by Democrats and Republicans uh, uh, based on the exit polls and early election returns. And then, of course, a big uh, question is who's going to control the House of Representatives. So I expect a very long Wednesday morning. Mm -hmm. But fortunately, Dave Brady is three hours behind you, so Dave can be calling you all night long with questions. Right, Dave? (laughs) It's illegal, so I can't do it, but I would if I could. Okay, very good. Uh, so, guys, let's talk about what's at stake here in 2022. And the first thing I want to get your thoughts on, Dave, is the idea of this uh, long-term movement in politics. This goes back to Bill Clinton in 1994. The previous four presidents have entered office with control of Congress, and each has left office having seen the other party take over control of office. This happened to Clinton. It happened to George W. Bush. It happened to Barack Obama. It happened to Donald Trump. And a week from now, it might begin uh, to be happening to Joe Biden. Uh, If the House of Representatives flips, uh, which is highly anticipated, I think uh, 538.com gives it about an 8 in 10 chance the last time I looked. Guys, it'll mark the sixth time in the last nine congressional elections that at least one chamber, the House or the Senate, has changed hands. Dave, I grew up in Washington, D.C. in the 60s and 70s and 80s, where there was permanency if you worked on Capitol Hill uh, in two regards. Number one, your member, unless they drove a car into the tidal basin of the Potomac River, they were probably safe in what they did for a living. But secondly, if you're a Democrat or a Republican, you stayed on one side. You're either the majority or the minority, and things didn't shift. But starting in 1994, things shift. Things have been very volatile. What's going on here, Dave? Well, so there are a number of things that have happened. Uh, one, elections have become nationalized. It used to be the case in the times you're talking about that members of the House of Representatives had a personal vote. And even though Reagan could win, the House stayed Democratic. Uh, so same even though Bush won. Uh, Bush won and won, the House could stay Democratic. The second thing that happened, uh, though, is polarization, which is the parties have sorted into the Democrats are essentially liberal with some moderates and the Republicans are conservative with fewer moderates. So so the result of that is when presidents get elected, they overinterpret. So my view of what's happened with Biden is Biden was elected uh, for the essential reason that he wasn't Donald Trump. 
And then he comes in and pushes policies, trying to think that they're like Franklin Delano Roosevelt, time for big changes, and the country reacts against it. Same thing with Donald Trump, Bill Clinton in, uh, with the health care initiative. Uh, George Bush is the only one that uh, that did not happen to in 2002, but it certainly did in 2006. So right. the combination of those two factors, nationalization of elections, loss of the personal vote, and uh, finally, the polarization pushes uh, parties to go further left and right. And then the middle of the mid, mid the ad median voter in the country goes back uh, against the uh, push too far left and too far right. That's my view of uh, shortest view I can give you of what happened. What do you think, Doug? I agree with uh, Dave's uh, analysis of this. It's the decline of the incumbency advantage. So it used to be that a congressman uh, could win a district that um, was actually controlled by the other party, voted for the other party for president. Right. Uh, that's disappeared. Um, and uh, what we have now is when you're voting for a representative in the House uh, or a senator, uh, you're implicitly voting on which party is going to control uh, Congress. And uh, right now, uh, the Democrats um, are about even on that. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I spent time in Charleston, South Carolina, visiting family, and there is a, a congressional district there that will probably stay Republican. This is Nancy Mace. Um, that seat flipped in 2018. Um, a uh, never-Trump Republican got bounced uh, for a Democrat. The Democrat got bounced for a Republican in 2020, and now she's running for re-election and probably will, will get returned to office. But interesting, Doug, if you look at the ads there, uh, she talks a little bit, Nancy Mace, about her accomplishments, but boy, she spent a lot of time putting images on the screen. And those images Images are Nancy Pelosi and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and to a lesser extent, Joe Biden. But she is what Dave's referring to. She's nationalizing that race. Yeah, and you're seeing that all over the country. Uh, you know, this is not a great year for Democrats. Uh, normally, the incumbent party loses in a midterm election. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, the economic numbers, well... Economic numbers aren't as bad as people say, but certainly people are extremely pessimistic on the economy and something on the order of 20 to only 20 to 25 percent of the public thinks that uh, we're headed in the right direction. So, um, yeah, I'm looking at some. Good... Yeah, I'm looking at some Gallup numbers from uh, from yesterday, Doug. 40% of Americans approve of the job uh, Biden is doing. 17% express satisfaction with how things are going in the United States. 49% say the state of the economy is quote-unquote poor. 21% approve of the job the Democratic-led Congress is doing. Yeah, and those numbers are up from yeah. <laughs> where they were in the spring. <laughs> That's the good news. <laughs> well, and don't forget inflation. I mean, inflation continues to be... Uh, the single issue that people say is most important has the highest percentage. And, and secondly, that's the one they see when they uh, go out, uh, when they go out for dinner, when they go out for gas, mm -hmm. that's the one they see. Yeah. So Dave and Doug, maybe not a good night for Democrats, but Doug, what about a good night for pollsters? And here I want to read to you a little bit uh, from a column uh, from a fellow named Keith Naughton, who's a strategic consultant, meaning that he uh, was a political consultant at one time. Now he's trying. No, to that means he makes it up. That's right. <laughs> Using the data. That's right. Remember, crisis communications is now strategic communications. <laughs> but here's what Mr. Naughton is writing in the in the Hill. The title of his piece: "The Bad, the Ugly, and the Really Ugly." Uh, this is about polling, and he writes, "Quote: Low." 
overconfidence likely feeds into a suspicion of polling and may be severely increasing the difficulty of reaching GOP voters and now independents. Pollsters are desperately scraping for voters outside the Democratic Party. One has to question whom they're actually reaching to fill out their quotas and whether they are failing to include enough Republicans and independents at all. So, Doug, here we are in 2022 and we're in yet another cycle and yet another conversation about do the polls actually get it right? Yeah. So not to be overly defensive, but uh, Mr. Naughton doesn't have a clue about how polling is done. <laughs> uh, there are no quotas for uh, Republicans and so forth. There are, it is the case that people. Um, so a little background. Well, I'd, um, I'd be defensive and I'd probably be tired because you guys have a kick me sign on your back in every election. <laughs> but let's let's spend a couple minutes, Doug, talking about how exactly you sample in this election, because this gets into mm-hmm. what we're going to talk about here in a minute, the idea of a wave and who's going to actually vote in this election. Yes. So there these days, there are many different kinds of polls. So uh, traditionally, the media polls you've seen uh, used random digit dialing. So you pick phone numbers at random, um, and then you weight the sample that you get uh, to be demographically representative. And sometimes you wait on party uh, party ID. Mm-hmm. Um, the um, the challenge is that the response rates have dropped through the floor, so the uh, it's hard to get younger people to talk to you if you call them, even if you call them on a cell phone. Right. Um, and second, no one knows exactly what party ID distribution to wait to. Um, so the the ones that have more Republicans are going to look more Republican than the ones that have uh, higher numbers of Democrats. Uh, at the other extreme, there are Internet panels like the one that uh, I use at YouGov, uh, where we uh, get large numbers of people to sign up to uh, take surveys, and then we select people. And so we select them based on demographics and past vote. Mm, right. Um, so we want so many Trump voters, so many Biden voters, so many non-voters. Um, and we then, uh, based on a, a model of demographics by past vote, uh, select them that way. We don't uh, have quotas for uh, Republicans and Democrats. Um that um, and that approach depends upon past vote doing a lot of the work to uh, uh, to catch uh, Republicans who have been, you know the very Trumpy Republicans have uh, seem they seem to be harder to get in polls they want to participate less um, but what we're doing is we're getting the right number of people who voted for Trump and Biden in 2020. Um, of late, uh, we've also introduced a uh, baseline partisanship. So we take what people told us their partisanship was in March of this year, and uh, we control the sample. So we don't lose the more Republican people um, who were talking to us in March, or at least we replace them with other Republicans. Uh, the other way, which is what most campaign polls do and the New York Times Siena poll does, is um, sample off of registration lists. Mm -hmm. So you don't have phone numbers for a lot of people, but for the ones that you do, you can select the right fraction of Democratic registrants and Republican registrants in states that have party registration. Uh, In states without party registration that have party primaries, frequently that's used as a substitute. Um, But in the other states, you're stuck with 
picking people by geography and uh, uh, demographics. Um, it is interesting that one of the innovations that we and a number of other pollsters have introduced this year is uh, that we take primary participation into account. Yeah. Um, it appears in 2020, we had too many Democratic primary voters. Um, and so that can help you a lot in states that have partisan primaries. It doesn't help in a state like California, where um, there is, there's no party primary. Um, but we think that all polls have a problem of they're getting too many, um, what I would call engaged voters. Uh, and there's a big fraction of the electorate, people who actually vote, uh, who are neither uh, never Trumpers nor uh, MAGA Republicans. Um, and uh, that's the group of swing voters and is the most challenging uh, to get right in a sample. Yeah, Dave, I think the other challenge here is that, you know, unlike, say, a pharmaceutical ad where there's always a very fast talking disclaimer at the end of the ad, you know, you know, with a list of 10 horrible things that could happen to you if you actually take the pill. Polls don't come with disclaimers necessarily. At least people don't go to the bottom of the poll and see when the, you know, what the margin of error is and what it was taken and all that. Other people don't understand that a poll is the cliche, what a snapshot in time that the numbers can move. Now, if we look at these numbers and we see, wow, Rivers is up by four points over Brady, the race is over. But guess what? Numbers can change. But you, well, won't, get better, you thing... won't get a better explanation of uh, mm -hmm. polling than you just got from Doug. Yeah. That was really good. Go ahead, Doug. Well, we it does appear there's been movement that in the spring, the poll numbers were <clears throat> dire for Democrats. It looked like uh, Republicans would uh, win the House vote by uh, four or five points. Um, and Biden's popularity was in the mid-30s. And it swung back to most people have Biden's popularity in the low 40s. And the generic vote ranges from a few polls that have Democrats up uh, a lot where it's roughly even. And then some polls where Republicans are up. Um, the feeling in the last few weeks is that it's tended to swing back the other direction um, with Republicans doing a bit better. Um, mm. But it, it, it's definitely going to. Uh, the polls are giving a sort of muddy picture of what's going to happen. Okay, that's a good lead into to a series of narratives that I'd like you to to address pre-election narratives. Mm -hmm. Narrative number one is that a wave is coming. Um, I've been studying this for months. This fascinates me. If we talked six, eight months ago, we would have talked about a red wave. And then suddenly, as you mentioned, Doug, things started changing and we dropped the word wave and we started talking ripple. Then we dropped the word ripple and started talking maybe ebb tide. This is going to be a unicorn of election. But here we are now just a few days before election day. And now you hear wave talk back. So Dave and Doug, what, what drives the talk about WAVE? Is it just journalists deciding all of a sudden the WAVE is coming? Do they look at polling data to decide this? Do they talk to consultants? How does how does this herd mentality build? Well, it depends how you define it, right? I mean, I, when I, I've written some papers on this, and I define it as uh, over 30 seats. Somebody else could define it as 40 seats. Yeah. But uh, so, so whatever that number is, uh, as it moves closer to that, and I do, I think it's, I think at the outer edge, it's close to 30. So you, uh, I, I would, I'd still be surprised if the Republicans picked up more than 30 or more seats. 
but it's I think it's into the 20s, high 20s for them now. And so if in the next uh, next week, if they went to 32 or 33 or 30, even 35, I would I wouldn't be terribly surprised. But I think it's right at the edge of 30 seats. Doug, is there a better term than wave something a little more academic than bad night for Democrats? <laughs> well, the political science literature traditionally has had something called the cube law that said that if you take the um, ratio of votes uh, of one party to the other and you take the um, third power uh, of it, that gets you what the ratio of seats is, which roughly would mean for every percent of extra vote, you would get 3% of the seats. At 50%. Uh, Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that 50-50 race. Um, in uh, reality, in the U.S., we've never been at a multiple of three. Um, it was typically around two. But even uh, doubling it, um, you know, if the Republicans won the House vote by four points, uh, that would say they would pick up 8% of the seats, mm-hmm. um, which is... Uh, you know, a a pretty big uh, number uh, in this election. Um, I think, you know, what's happened with polarization and so forth is we're down to much closer to a, a one-to-one uh, shift in seats from votes. Um, so Democrats in 2020 uh, won the House vote by a, around two points. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so, you know, if we're about, even on the um, generic vote, uh, then you would expect a very small pickup, which is what I think people were expecting a month ago. Um, I think right now, the bulk of the polls show Republicans winning the House vote by um, two or three points, uh, in which case you're back to about what Dave described as a, uh, you know, 20 to 30 seat pickup. One one clarification here is, Mm -hmm. The uh, cube rule that you talked about is true for uh, first past the post systems like the United States, Britain, et cetera. Uh, and it's not true in Israel and places where they have proportional representation. But the point is, at about 50 percent, it gets close to that. It, it gets close to proportional. Yep. Doug, I think Israel has held five elections in the last 44 days now. Isn't that is that just a poster? <laughs> is that just a poster's dream? And no, Netanyahu won all of them. So imagine that a guy I who's got called by one of the candidates in that election to advise him, but I passed. Yeah, imagine this for a minute: a guy who's under indictment gets returned to office. Hmm, go figure. James Michael Curley, Washington <laughs> Mayor. I think Brady remembers that. Doug, doesn't Israel also have some uh, very clever rules about releasing of polls uh, before the election? I, I think I heard somewhere there's like a three-day boycott before the election of doing of doing campaign polls or something like that. Yeah, I think that would be great. I could have the weekend <laughs> off. <laughs> boy. Okay, Dave, I want we you to... We will be releasing stuff on uh, probably Sunday afternoon. Yeah. All right, Dave, I want you to address narrative number two, and that is one of issues. Um, In this election, uh, very simple. One party stressed the economy and inflation and crime. The other party thought that turnout would be based on a synergy of abortion rights and voting rights. And the party which chose inflation and crime apparently got things right. Dave, you and Doug and your colleague, Brett Parker, have written a uh, column for Real Clear Pollux called The Issues That Will Decide the Midterm Election. Um, 
headline doesn't tell which issues, but can you just kind of briefly recap what's in that column? What issues are driving this election? So, estimation? Uh, so, so the question is when people uh, talk about the abortion issue or mm -hmm. the democracy issue. Uh, so the, the question is, suppose on abortion, uh, the people who say, I won't vote for someone who uh, says no abortion. I'm sorry, if they're all Democrats, uh, then it doesn't make it doesn't make much difference. So let me start this way. There's three there's three sources of the vote, right? One, you can your own party votes for you. The second way you can get some votes is some members of the other party vote for you, and then finally pure independents vote for you. Right. And and so the defectors, members of the other party, and pure independents, in my view, that's where electorates are. Uh, that's where elections are decided by now. How those voters move. So Doug uh, designed a clever experiment uh, to deal with that issue. And we dealt just with two issues, uh, democ uh, the democracy issue and the issue of abortion. And, and the idea in both of them was to see, uh, if, for, is to see if those defectors, if there, are many, if there are many potential defectors in there, Republicans who would vote for a Democratic candidate because of abortion or independents who swung that way. And so without describing the analysis in great detail, the, the findings were that if you look at both abortion and uh, the democracy issue, and the democracy issue is decided by someone who said they uh, didn't think the election, uh, that they didn't think the 2020 election was uh, rigged. And in the other column, there are people who said they wouldn't vote for a candidate who said it was rigged. In both, in both those cases, there were sufficient numbers in abortion and that issue. There's sufficient number of Republicans and independents. And in both cases, uh, Democrats pick up a couple percentage points on the democracy issue. Mm -hmm. On the abortion issue, then this last week, Doug ran another question where you changed the abortion from the strict position, no abortions under any conditions, and as you loosen the conditions of abortion, Republicans lost a lot less. So the point about the issues is there are trade-offs involved in the issues, and you want to find out how many defectors or how many independents are moving that way. And in, and in this election, it turns out that those two issues, I think, continue to give Democrats a couple points, uh, depending upon the candidate. But the inflation issue, and you're not going to get an opposite side on that, right? Nobody's going to say, oh, yeah, I'm for inflation, but let's have more of it. Uh, so on that issue, uh, the Republicans are making more headway than the Democrats are on the other two. So on that basis, and on crime also, although we didn't test crime, you'd expect the, the Republicans, the Republicans will take the House, and the issue, the economy is outweighing, in my view, the economy is outweighing abortion and um, and the democracy issue. Right. Doug? Yeah. So I would dissent a little bit from uh, uh, what Dave said on that. Um, so historically, the economy was one of these issues that uh, if it was good, everybody thought it was great and the incumbent party did well. And if things were bad, then people voted against the incumbent party. But um, one of the things that's happened with polarization is that people's views of the economy have become polarized, that um, two people, one a Democrat, one a Republican, looking at the exact same situation, can seem to have quite diametrically opposed views on how the economy is doing. Uh, so the potency of the economy is an issue. Um, 
just because people say it's important, that doesn't mean they agree on which party would do a better job of uh, handling the economy. What we're seeing in this year is that Republicans are extremely negative on the state of the economy, and Democrats are what I would describe as mildly negative. Now, that's not a good thing for Democrats, but it's not as bad as uh, in a world you know, 30, 40 years ago where the incumbent party would necessarily get shellacked because um, you know the inflation numbers are bad. Um, it's uh, the partisans are largely going to go in uh, their own direction. And so the net effect of the economy is less than these numbers of, you know, half the public saying the economy is the most important issue would lead you to believe. All right, Doug, I want to stick with you and uh, talk about narrative number three, which is uh, messaging. Uh, I don't know if you remember the movie. It came out in the 1990s. It was called Wag the Dog. Uh, it was eerily predictive, and I believe it came out before the Lewinsky scandal broke, and it involved a president who had an affair with a White House aide. And I think Dave and Doug, I think she was actually wearing a beret. It was just really oddly um, <laughs> parallel to Monica. But uh, I mentioned this because one of the uh, characters in the movie is played by Anne Hesch, the late Anne Hesch who we lost this summer. She plays a kind of semi-crazed White House communications person who just runs around uh, like their hair on fire saying, I can't go out there without talking points. And in other words, she, she has to have something to talk about. She needs a message to sell the people. Uh, I mention this because California Governor Gavin Newsom is in the news this morning. He did an interview with Major Garrett, who is the uh, CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Doug, as you know, you'll be hanging out with him on Tuesday night. Here's what Governor Newsom and told Mr. Major, quote, we're getting crushed on narrative. We're going to have to do better in terms of getting on the offense and stop being on the damn defense. Um, Doug, is that the problem in this election? Democrats are not on the offensive? I don't think the Democratic messaging has been very good. Uh, yeah. The lack of an economic message, uh, you know, it's not that it's a tough message to craft, but it's, what they've come up with is pretty poor. It's, um, yeah, I think they could have done much better there. Well, you know, the Newsom approach is to done, take... How could, they have, how could they have done better? Yeah. Inflation um, is really high. Well, it's you say the Republicans the are, uh, you know, try to blame uh, Republicans for the inflation. It was the Trump tax cuts it, uh, for the rich. It was Republicans opposing uh, prescription drug uh, price controls. Uh, you know, it's... I agree with you. It's there's no simple message that's going to just make people ignore what's going on, uh, and that's you know the incumbents have to deal with that. Uh, but I, I think their messaging has been pretty crappy on this. Um, they were saved partly by a change of subject over the summer to uh, right. uh, to Dobbs and the January six, uh, which. You know, as, as we discussed earlier, probably have moved things a few points back in the Democratic direction from what would it be if it were only the economy. But yeah, so the Newsom approach is to take the fight to red states. So here you have the governor of California over the summer getting into very public spats with Governor Abbott of Texas and Governor DeSantis of Florida. Uh, Newsom trolling him uh, by running ads on Fox News, posting billboards in uh, red states saying uh, California will protect your right to choose and so on and so forth. Uh, mm -hmm. President Biden took this up this week. He went to Florida and campaigned against Ron DeSantis and just kind of 
openly dumped on Florida, but I'm not sure that was a smart thing for him well, to do. I, he is, I'm he sure is, that will change oh, everything. Well, A, he's he's going into a state where the governor's probably going to get 55% on Tuesday night. Uh, right. And B, if you just look at the Democrats, uh, the demographics in Florida, I saw a stat the other day. Republicans are signing up nine registered new voters for every one who signs up as a Democrat. Florida has become California, a mirror in this regard. If you look yeah. at history of California in the last 20 years, it's bleeding Republicans who are going into the independent side. Florida's having the same dynamic now. Democrats are becoming independent. So I just don't understand why the chief executive decided to bop down to Florida of all places to, to have this conversation. I don't think he could hurt anything in Florida. I don't think the Democrats are going to win any of the statewides there. Yeah, okay. I, I agree. All right, let's move let's move on to narrative number four then and that is the blame game which is already starting in the press i sent you guys a piece in axios this morning uh it starts out talking about the cook political report shifting its ratings in favor of republicans in 10 house districts all in states that biden won by 15 points or more in 2020 these are three seats apiece in california new york two in illinois one each in illinois in uh, new jersey or oregon it doesn't mean that these states will vote Republican necessarily. It just means that they're tightening that a lean Democrat uh, district becoming a, a toss up, a heavy Democrat light and so forth. But it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to go Republican. And what caught my eye was, though, a, a comment uh, given by a Democratic strategist who works on House campaigns. He told Axios the following, quote, there is a direct correlation between the performance of Kathy Hochul, she's the governor of New York, and Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, and the effect it's having on House candidates. This consultant goes on, I think Republicans are noticing this, too, especially in New York. They're not even running ads anymore with Pelosi and Biden. They're running ads with Kathy Hochul. Unless Hochul and Newsom pick it up, we're going to lose House seats. Um this is the bus coming down the street and who gets thrown under the bus. And so it, some people want to throw the president of the United States under the bus. Some people want to throw the chair of the various congressional committees under the bus. And here are two blue state governors getting thrown under the bus. So is this, is this a preview of coming attractions? The Democrats, <laughs> pro, the Democrats problem in the election is they have, uh, if you look at uh, what's happened to the party, there's about 60%, uh, 60 could, varies a little bit on the YouGov polls. Yep. But over the last uh, four or five years, they have about 60, 62 percent uh, people who say they're liberal or very liberal. And then the rest, 38 percent, or say they're moderate with a few conservatives thrown in there. And and uh, the people who defect from the Democrats are the moderates, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and that constitutes a problem. And Gavin Newsom doesn't have to worry about that, although three of those 10 districts are in California. And the governor has done very little about that. So he he's positioning himself to run uh, to run for president, I think. And uh, and Kathy Hochul is not. Uh, but she's uh, missed out on some of the issues like crime and inflation. So they haven't been on the right side. And in Oregon, it looks it looks uh, it looks like the or uh, the governor of Oregon is going to lose. The incumbent governor is going to lose, and it's going to be a Republican governor for the first time in quite some time in Oregon because on these issues the party's uh, too far left. Mm -hmm. So, Doug, the question of then who to blame. Well, when things go badly, uh, everyone looks for someone else to blame, and that's what you're seeing here. So it's it's a really bad sign when the consultants are trying to blame the governors. That's telling you that their <laughs> internal data doesn't look very good, um, which I do think is the case. Uh, you know, another thing in in the last week, a bunch of uh, Republican partisan polls were dumped, um, which pushed the polling averages more Republican, um, but. The point is there probably aren't a lot of good internal Democratic polls to dump to uh, to contradict that. 
So take us through uh, election night then, Doug. You're on the desk in New York, I assume at CBS, and mm-hmm. you are sitting down. Before that, though, you guys had meetings. You talk about how they approach the election. When you sit down at that desk at night, you are looking at all sorts of data. And do you have a piece of paper next to you that has a list of congressional seats as bellwethers or gubernatorial races or Senate races? How, in other words, As the evening is going along, how do you assess the damage that's occurring out there? Yeah, so we have a model for house races. Mm-hmm. Uh so it's uh, <laughs> it's a computer screen, not a piece of paper. And uh, as the returns come in, we see to what extent they're departing from what we had predicted in advance. Mm-hmm. And then we adjust what we think is going to happen in the rest of the country, um, you know, because it you know comes in East Coast earlier and Midwest later and West Coast late in the night. And uh, but I expect. The way it looks at the moment, I think relatively early in the night, it's going to be feasible to make a safe projection of what's going to happen in the House. Um, That's uh, I I tend to focus on the Senate races, uh, and those are called uh, one by one. Um, So in that case, it's going to be a much longer night. Um, Georgia, for example, has a 50% requirement that a candidate must get to avoid a runoff. Right. Um, and that's a three-party, it's a three-person three race. Three-candidate so. race. Most people are projecting it's a runoff, but, you know, mm-hmm. if if Warnock was able to win by three points, he could probably avoid a, a runoff, you know, right. two to three points. If it's closer than that, then... Um, it's definitely going to run off. So that means that uh, if control of the Senate depends on Georgia, it's not being uh, called for another four weeks. How uh, how deep is your list of Senate races right now, Doug? The number that we'll watch is on the order closely is, you know, on, is, is like uh, eight or nine includes things like uh, New Hampshire and Colorado and uh, which if if they were going Republican, then it would be a major red wave. Right. Um, the bulk of the the races that we thought were going to be competitive, that were particular um, potential Democratic pickups like Ohio and Wisconsin, um, seem to have moved away from the Democrats. Um, they're still close enough, so they can't be called without uh, lots of uh, election returns. Um, the biggies that I think control of the Senate depends upon are uh, Pennsylvania, Georgia, and Nevada. Um, so Pennsylvania is the Democrats' best hope of a pickup, um, close race, uh, bad debate for the Democratic candidate. Uh, so uh, really hard to say which way that's going to go. Uh, but Democrats need to pick up two of those three, assuming they can hold on in um arizona new hampshire i I think those are the most vulnerable democratic uh, and doug uh, when you look at arizona versus georgia georgia could be a split verdict uh where um the governor uh returns to office by a pretty good spread but the senate candidate herschel walker doesn't make it over the finish line uh that's the the biggest difference between the governor and senate and any race out there 
Exactly. What about Arizona, where um, Carrie Lake all of a sudden looks like she's a viable candidate and Blake Masters in the Senate race? This was somebody who was given up as dead several several weeks ago. Suddenly, that race seems to be closing. Uh, you didn't mention that in your list of three. Uh, would you put it? Yeah, I mean, I, we've shown uh, Mark Fields <laughs> with a reasonable lead. Um, our samples have been a little more Democratic than others, but I, I don't think there's anything out there showing a, a Masters lead. There are uh polls showing um carrie lake tied or in the lead right but i think in his case it would be similar to maybe a new hampshire race let's say it's not the republican in the lead but the republican may be lurking within distance and uh therefore yeah. we get back to the idea of the the, the wave the cube where the, the tide rises and takes that yeah so if if a wave real wave were to occur one that would give you know republicans you know 53 54 seats uh you would need seats like that to flip um we're not going to uh new hampshire will know early in the night uh but uh arizona is going to be very late okay dave let's get to our final narrative here and that is my contention that the more things change the more they remain the same in this regard first of all you could have an election night and in the weeks after where we are back in the uh, trough of election integrity. Uh, I don't know if you've been listening to the podcast that uh, Ben Ginsburg has been doing on this. They've been fantastic. Um, but Ben has been talking to election officials around the country and journalists and other people covering the election. And there's a real question of what's going to happen, what's going to go down on election night. You could have a situation where there are voting controversies in Georgia, Pennsylvania, and uh in Arizona in terms of how the count's done, uh, depending on which side is losing, whose ox is getting gored, they're going to say stop the steal and they're going to cry foul. That sounds a lot like 2020 to me. But Dave, here's what I want to get your thoughts on in terms of the more things change, the more they remain the same. To me, this is kind of a question for Republicans in 2023 as it was in 1995. If you've been given power, how do you use it? And more to the point, how do you use it smartly? I, I think that's uh, <clears throat> I think that's a crucial question. Uh, if you thought about Bill Clinton in 1995, early 95, no one thought that he would, uh, everyone thought who's gonna run in his place, how we get rid of him. Uh, Barack Obama, even bigger losses in 2010, 11. And again, the comment was he couldn't win and they both won. Uh, so what, ha what the Republicans do is crucial. So what I'm looking for in that case is uh, Kevin McCarthy seems to have been putting out statements more about we want to stick to the economy, et cetera, et cetera. We want to do these things seem reasonable. So the question for the Republicans is if the if their margins very narrow, mm -hmm. then that gives does give McCarthy much room to maneuver. And so then some of the uh, how shall I put this? I can't say the way I normally would some of the. Some of the more extreme Republicans, Mari Taylor Rangard, uh, they they would then their their votes would be more crucial. Yes, you saw that for the Democrats on the Ukraine issue just last week when they backed off on a rules committee. So uh, that might push the Republican Party to do things like uh, impeach the president, things like that that they that that they shouldn't do. I don't see the problem in the Senate as anywhere near as big because I don't I don't I have not read or heard anyone say that uh, there was pressure to get rid of uh, Mitch McConnell in spite of what the president former President Trump says about McConnell. I see nothing there, and I think McConnell uh, McConnell knows how to manage that, and 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 his goal his goal is going to be putting his party in the best position to take the presidency in 2024. So uh, I think the big key is what happens in the House. 
mm-hmm. and uh, what they do. So, I mean, clearly they're going to stop the January 6th investigation, et cetera. But what they do matters a lot. And I actually think the if, the, if it's toward the 30 seat end, I think that gives McCarthy uh, more room to maneuver because he can discount some of the more extreme members. Yeah. Now, Doug, maybe it's too early to ask the question because they don't have control of either chamber of Congress. But have you done any polling or seen any polling that actually tells us what voters want Republicans to do if, in theory, if <clears throat> hypothetically, they had control of Congress? Um, yeah. So we've asked uh, questions on uh, what people uh, expect Republicans to do if they take control. Uh, and uh, most of the stuff that's controversial is, is clearly not popular but it's popular among the republican base uh the the problem for republicans in the house is if they do get 30 seats the people they're getting are uh, they're going to get some people who are pretty far out um, which will move uh marjorie taylor green uh in from the uh, most extreme member um I, i would say a failure of democratic messaging is uh that they've not made Marjorie Taylor Greene the face of the Republican Party to the extent Republicans have made AOC uh, the face of Democrats in Congress. That's well put. But something else is going on here, fellas, I want to get your thoughts on. And that's that this election, while it could be decisive in terms of one party making gains, the other one not, uh, it still leaves part both parties in this uncomfortable situation. That's one of an identity crisis. If you're the Democrats and you lose the House and maybe the Senate, you're going to go marching around thinking, what is it the Democrats stand for? This gets back to the idea of the, the Newsom messaging and so forth. What do we stand for? What do we believe? How do we present ourselves? But I'd offer the flip side of that coin to Republicans, it's also none too pleasant. If Republicans have a good night on election night, and Dave, you're talking about this where we came on the air, that's going to be a good night for Donald Trump because he could potentially say, hey, my guy in Georgia won the Senate race. My guy in Arizona won the Senate race. My guy in Pennsylvania, Dr. Oz, these are all my guys. They won. I still got it. And then lo and behold, next thing you know, he's running for president. And here we are going to early 2023 and a Republican. Are you the party of Donald Trump or not? So it's you know, I don't want to. I don't want to rain on the Republicans' parade here, but I just think both parties have a lot of thinking to do moving forward to 2024. Well, you can count on one thing: on the Democratic side, Bernie Sanders and AOC will say we didn't we didn't fight hard enough for liberal principles. Yeah. So there, nobody's going to back off on that, uh, and and that, it's wrong. I mean, it's it's just flat out wrong. But it's great because it gives me another opportunity to write another piece that says. <laughs> Once again, Bernie was wrong uh, because the people you're gonna, you're gonna write that or, you're gonna write that or du- you're gonna write that or dust it off. <laughs> now I'm just gonna dust it off with a little new data. But, but the point is, the people who the Democrats who lose are the moderates. Yeah, the progressives the progressives don't 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 lose. Uh, so that's my for but for the Republican Party, uh, it, it is it is it is a bit of a problem in my view in the following sense. And you when you talk to Republican operatives. They know that if in Pennsylvania the other guy had won the nomination, this election would be over. Right. They also know that Herschel Walker is not a good candidate in uh, Georgia. They they also know that Masters is not a good candidate in Arizona. So even if Donald Trump claims credit, the people who understand the people in the Republican Party who run to who run uh, and understand these issues. Uh, they know, and so do uh, a whole bunch of other people know that uh, even though Trump says it, but it's a problem because once it once it's out there and and he can say that, 
you know, what do those people do? That that does constitute a very tough problem. Okay, have you done any polling showing what appetite Americans have for a rerun of Biden and Trump in 2024? Yes. <laughs> yeah, so the, the answer is most people do not want either Trump or Biden to run in 2024. Right. Um, I, uh, we, we have asked trial heats on Trump versus Biden. I try to resist uh, showing those because I don't think they tell you much of anything at this point. Um but uh, Trump is a Republican. Biden can beat, and that's not true of a lot of other Republicans. In the in the last YouGov poll, it was 58, 58 I think fifty eight point seven percent, something like that, who who said uh, Trump shouldn't run again, and fifty five percent said roughly fifty five percent said Biden shouldn't run. The question I'm pushing Doug to ask in the next one is. If, if, if there's a bunch of Republicans, uh, some 20 percent or 90, 20 percent say they wouldn't vote for Trump. They don't want him to run. The real question is, and 60 percent of independents don't want him to run. The real question is, if he got the nomination, would you vote for him? Forget forget running against Biden. Just if you if he gets the nomination, would you vote? That's the crucial question. And so I promised Dave I would ask that. But I, I think the answer is pretty clearly that, yes, Republicans would vote for Trump and the ones that say they don't want him to run. It's not because they hate Trump for the most part. It's uh, they would prefer someone else. Um, I, I think, think I agree. He's ready agree for a break from Trump. <laughs> okay. I agree with that. I just want to see the data. Okay. Well, guys, let's wrap things up. Um, tell me what's going to happen on Tuesday night. So I think uh, Republicans are going to win uh, low 230 seats in the house low, two, uh, low 230 so they're going to pick up about 20 230 to 235 okay. or so so about 22 23 seats maybe yep. something like that okay senate uh, and then i think the uh, republicans are going to get 51 seats in the senate mm -hmm. dave what do you think you got any surprises for us uh, if i had to bet if mm -hmm. i had to bet i would uh i would bet exactly that uh 51 49 in the senate and uh, around 234, 235 in the House. Uh, but I do, I still think there's like a 40, 45% shot that the Democrats uh, could win two of those three races. I agree that three key races are Arizona, Georgia, and Pennsylvania. And I was amazed to see in the polls in Pennsylvania after that horrible performance, by the sad but horrible performance of Fetterman, that uh, he's he's with it. he's still up. He's ahead in the polls, but by the margin of error. So so it's going to be a turnout question. So it could be the case that the Dem. So there's a 40, 45 percent chance that the Democrats have 50 seats in the Senate. OK, I'm a very California centric person, as you know. So I'm looking at a couple of things out here in the Golden State. Number one, the the aforementioned House races to see if uh, see if Republicans manage to <clears throat> flip, let's say, one or two seats in Southern California, if they hold on to a uh, a very challenging seat in the Central Valley. David Valadeo, he's a Republican incumbent. He voted for impeachment. So he's had to kind of walk a tight line there. Uh, second thing I'm looking at is the Los Angeles mayor's race, uh, getting down to some very local politics. This is a fascinating race. Uh, Karen Bass, uh, uh, Democratic congresswoman, she was on Joe Biden's uh, vice presidential shortlist. Uh, she's running against Rick Caruso, who um, at one time a Republican, then an independent. He is now a born-again Democrat. Uh, he is a developer. He uh, developed the Grove in uh, Los Angeles. He has spent about $100 million in this race. 
running very hard on economy, on crime, on homelessness, and Karen Button is trying. Uh, Karen Bass is trying to push very reliable Democratic hot buttons. I believe Kamala Harris and Barack Obama are both out in that uh, race uh, in the final weekend, which is kind of interesting window again into the Democrats' challenges. You take the vice president of the United States and you send her to Los Angeles, California in the final weekend, a Democrat versus Democratic race. But the outcome of that fascinates me in terms of potencies of issues like homelessness and crime in California. And then the third race I'm looking at is our colleague Lon He Chen here in California. He's running for state controller. Uh, he has run a very strong race. I give him a lot of credit. He has campaigned hard. He has done everything very right. But his is a numerical challenge. He's in a state where Democrats outnumber Republicans two to one. Uh, Gavin Newsom, though kind of an absentee governor in terms of campaigning area, he's going to win by 25 points. It's awfully hard to be down on the ballot in the controller's race and have people kind of check off each Democratic line and then get to there and say, oh, wait a second, I'm going to go over and vote for Lonnie. But let's see how close that race is on election night. Yeah, he's also got, I think he's got 21 or 23 uh, papers in California to endorse him in this race. He got the endorsement of Los Angeles Times, and I can tell you anecdotally, having worked for Pete Wilson uh, back when he was governor of California, he ran for re-election in 1994. That was one of the proudest moments of Wilson's life, I think, when the Los Angeles Times kind of grudgingly endorsed him for re-election. He kind of felt like he'd slayed the dragon. (laughs) Uh, anyway, there we are. <laughs> Newspapers were a bigger deal back then than yeah. that. They really were, because I remember in that election, uh, not too long, we all sat around and waited for the endorsements to come rolling in, but uh, yeah. it doesn't seem to matter as much anymore, does it, guys? No, they don't. Okay. Doug Rivers, safe travels to New York. Hope you uh, have a good time on election night. We'll be looking for you on TV. Look for the back of my head. I'll be behind the uh, anchor desk. I think Dave always says you never look better when we see the back of your head. Yeah. <laughs> okay, guys, well, I enjoyed the podcast. Thanks very much for coming on. And uh, let's see how things go down election night. Thank you. You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the globe. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to our show. If you wouldn't mind, please spread the word. Get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at HooverInst. That's spelled at Hoover, I-N-S-T. Dave Brady is not on Twitter, but Doug Rivers is. His Twitter handle is at Doug underscore Rivers. YouGov, his excellent polling company, also on Twitter, at YouGov. That's spelled Y-O-U-G-O-V. Doug, you going to stay on Twitter? Uh, we'll see. Are you going to go to Condi the, Rice the and ask her? you interact with on Twitter aren't so bad. So. Are you going to go to Condi Rice and ask her for $8 a month so you can keep your blue check on Twitter? Don't have one now, so. Oh, uh, you don't. Um, and happy that way. Okay, very good. I mentioned our website at the beginning of this show. That is www.hoover.org. While you're there, sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Dave Brady and Doug Rivers to your inbox weekdays. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whelan. We'll be back soon with another installment of Matters of Policy and Politics. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.